Open Field Radio. Like, subscribe, share, and review wherever podcasts are found. Open Field Radio. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Where ag and life collide. Brought to you by Gowan. Thomas Steinwinder, Longleaf Tea Company. Growing tea in America. We talk it all right now. Hello, America, and a growing audience around the world. Welcome to Open Field Radio, raising the hip factor in agriculture. Man, what a great show today. And there's a cool, I guess it's cool, there's always a backstory to these things, right? But there is a backstory to this episode. Our guest today, Thomas Steinwinder, Longleaf Tea Company, Laurel, Mississippi. Now, I don't know what your Saturday mornings are like at your house, but my Saturday mornings start with a cup of coffee and HGTV. That's just what I do. I have always done it. But HGTV, there's a particular show that I watch on Saturday mornings, and it's called Hometown, and it's got uh, a nice couple, Ben and Aaron, and they redo old houses in Laurel, Mississippi, which is pretty cool all by itself. They just stay in their town and fix the whole place up. It's really cool. Now, I happen to have an old house. My house was built in 1939, and it is a continual project, so I watch this show because they do great things with houses like mine. Well, on this particular episode, a handful of weeks ago, you can go find it yourself on your DVR thing there, lo and behold, Ben and Aaron, the cute hometown couple, are working with these folks and a tea farm. And I said, what? Who are these people? So, you know, I hit up old Google there and start Googling around, and sure enough, there they are, the Steinwinders. And today, we're going to talk with Thomas Steinwinder about the Longleaf Tea Company. That is how I found them, watching TV. Funny what you can do in this day and age, isn't it? He's going to tell us all about tea and growing tea in America, which, uh, why is that such a strange thing? Why isn't there more tea grown here? We're going to talk about that, as well as their experience on HGTV. I'm sure that was a good time. In other things, we continue here at Open Field Radio to be super excited about all the interaction that's happening from the website to all the new listeners from around the world. Any way you slice it, it's exciting. And from me and from us to all of you, thank you very much for participating with this and keeping this thing going. means the world to us, and of course, without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves, right? And if you're new to the show, don't miss the website, openfieldradio.com. You can always email us at info at openfieldradio.com. And as of right now, there are more than 40 episodes of Open Field Radio for you to dig through, so make sure you do that. And speaking of great guests, coming up, Thomas Steinwinder and the Longleaf Tea Company in plus or minus 90 seconds. Open Field Radio. I don't know about you, but it seems like everywhere I turn right now, there's something about jobs and the abundance of jobs available out there. Well, here's one to throw in the mix. Skip the job. How about a career at Gowan? Maybe you're in agriculture. Maybe you're in science. Maybe you're none of that. Check it out at gowanco.com slash careers. Great opportunities available, and they're all cool. Careers right here in America and around the world. Come see it for yourself. That's gowanco.com slash careers. And tell them you heard it on Open Field Radio. Connecting with the best audience in ag podcasts. One episode at a time, one listener at a time. Open Field Radio. Open Field Radio Season 2, Episode 16 with Thomas Steinwinder and the Longleaf Tea Company. It all starts right now. The Longleaf Tea Company, as I read through what you were and who you were, one word kept coming up every time. It was the word adventure. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, the original concept kind of came from an adventure when I was uh, living over in Shanghai. And then when we moved back to Mississippi, that was an adventure. 
And then, of <laughs> course, planting tea plants in the U.S. when there's no playbook. And, you know, you reach out to the, the local ag extension and, you know, they do their best, but it's not a common crop. And, and so it's a lot of trial and error. And so it's been an absolute adventure from the very beginning going after this uh, tea market concept. Well, back up a second. I, I think I hear an accent in you there. And uh, how did that fly in Shanghai? <laughs> well, I worked really hard to neutralize it. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I was taking Mandarin classes five nights a week. And honestly, Mark, so that's where this a lot of this concept came from. Um, in between meetings and in between conference calls, there is a tea shop at the bottom of my apartment building. And I would go down there and sit with the lady and have tea and practice uh, my Mandarin. And we would have conversations in, about tea, and I just fell in love with really good tea, specialty tea. And she would always talk about the, the regions that they come from. You know, everything was tied back to a location. Oh, this is a Longjing from Zhejiang province. And, and she ended up asking me, well, what regions do you all grow your tea? You drink so much tea in the U.S. It's all iced, which is weird, but you drink it. it where does it come from? It's like, you know, I don't think we grow any tea in the U.S. Um, and that's kind of the spark, Mark, is when... I couldn't answer that question. And then like a good agricultural nerd, I went and started researching, you know, and looking for the answer and found that like there's practically none that's grown in the U.S. Uh, you know, one estate in um, South Carolina and, and then a few very small ones. And other than that, it wasn't happening. And so um, that's where it all started with that conversation. That is so cool. I was in Beijing. Oh, yeah. 2000. Eight, probably something like that. I took a trip there for work and uh, was taken same way, taken by the tea. Didn't go as far as you did with it, but the experience when you when you experience it there in China, in their environment, with their mindset of it, which is totally different than ours. Completely, yeah. Uh, it really opens your brain up a little bit to what is going on with the tea. So you come back mm -hmm. from China, and where does it go from there? Yeah, well, it was. Honestly, seven years of research. <laughs> I, mean, I, would, I would buy tea seeds and try to grow them on the back porch and fail over and over and over again. I could never keep anything alive. And, you know, doing all that research, there's this area of the world. It's about from 30 degrees latitude north to 35 degrees north. That is just kind of the zone where all the tea is mostly is grown or at least originally. So this is China, Japan, Turkey. All, that's kind of the tea region where it was originally grown. And Mississippi is smack dab in the middle of that zone. And it's 32 degrees north latitude, and, or at least the area where we're from. And so when we decided three years ago to move back to Mississippi, I said, let's give this a try. Let's see if we can actually pull this off. Um, and there was two more in Mississippi doing that work. And I uh, went and sat down with them. And they gave us a little bit of coaching, but warned us that it's trial and error. And we planted some plants and then here we are, you know, three years later. But uh, that's kind of the compressed version of seven years from the China conversation <laughs> to where we are now. <laughs> sure. No, I get it. And I love the, uh, you're right, adventure runs through there. Determination yeah. obviously runs through there. Passion runs through there. Is your family, are you all tea fans? My granddad, absolutely. So he and my father had an import-export business um, and they would travel to China two, three times a year. And he would come back with a suitcase full of tea. And so my earliest memories with him are sitting in his living room, um, having a cup of Chinese green tea together or jasmine tea together. And, you know, and that those memories were dormant for so long or, or the, just the connection with tea was dormant until I went to China myself, you know, 20, 30 years later. So I would say my granddad is where the introduction was, but we are absolutely 
a family, especially on my wife's side, that are very connected to the land and to the farm. The farm's been in her family for six generations. It's just down the road from my mother's side of the family, their clan, which um, has been in this area of the county for five generations, six generations, you know, farmers. And so it's very much a part of our ancestral, you know, DNA. Well, you brought it up. So let's talk about it. Tell me about the farm. This is fascinating. Yeah. You know, it's um, like I said, it's been in her family forever for uh, five, six generations, um, mostly timber. You know, that's, okay. you know, ever since the 1880s, um, this part of Mississippi was one of the biggest areas to produce the, the lumber for reconstruction after the Civil War. And a lot of the farmland around here was clear cut. That's where it comes from is the longleaf pines that originally covered the farm. And so their timber plot has been farmed for timber um, for that many generations, uh, also for corn, um, cotton, and beans at different times throughout their history. But her father is very connected to the land. And whenever we, I came to him with this idea, I was like, hey, can I just try this completely crazy idea? I'm going to lease some acreage from you. You give me a shot. He was like, that sounds crazy, but absolutely go for it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> so prior to tea farming, what is your background? And, and were, you, were you ready for tea farming because of your background or is this something totally different? Partially. So my background is in engineering. So I'm an environmental engineer and still am. So this was something that, honestly, Mark, was a side hobby that then became a side project that then has slowly taken over more and more. Like any, like any agricultural project, it grows and grows and grows and spills and takes more of your time. But I mean, it's our favorite thing to do is to get out there and get dirty on the land. But my background in engineering, you know, it wasn't in agriculture, but it allowed me to completely dig into the research and um, plan the processes for growing and germinating and, uh, you know, setting up the irrigation and everything. You're listening to Open Field Radio. Are you looking for a broad spectrum botanical insecticide that controls key insect pests on outdoor food crops? Well, look no more. Aza Direct Botanical Insecticide. Proven effective in university tests as an insect growth regulator, repellent, and anti-feedant. Listed by OMRI for use in organic production. Accredited by the USDA NOP. It meets new organic guidelines. Fully compatible for use in an IPM program. And can be applied up to the day of harvest. Tank makes flexibility compatible with many common used pesticides. So what about that broad spectrum botanical insecticide you're looking for? Look no more. Aza Direct Botanical Insecticide. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Company. I feel like the more shows we do, the more we get to know each other. You know what I mean? I know you, you know me. Oh, look, we're just regular people, right? And when it comes to promoting open field radio, I need regular people to tell other regular people this show is happening. So tell somebody, knock on somebody's door, call them up, send them a text, whatever, and tell them you're listening to open field radio and by golly, they should be too. It'll be awesome, I promise, because that's what friends do at Open Field Radio. Hi, my name is Nina Wilson, and I listen to Open Field from the lotus capital of the world, Yuma, Arizona. Quick shout out to some folks we know are listening to Open Field Radio. Big shout out to Remsenburg, New York, Lancaster, Wisconsin, Bow Bridge, Louisiana, Dixon, California, Colchester, Connecticut, La Home, Sweden, and Hatfield, England. Thanks for listening. From the Gowan Global Studio deep inside the Lee Hotel, this is Open Field Radio. Laurel, obviously, for your family and for your your family history and all those things, is the perfect place. And you said it falls right in what you call the T region globally. Is there anything uh, anything else specific about your geographic location that makes it just so ideal for tea? There, there's actually more, which is just has been fascinating during the research. So, because of the 
thousands and thousands of years of pine trees and pine needles falling, the, the soil is a bit more acidic, which is great for blueberries. It often, um, also happens to be perfect for tea. Tea loves slightly acidic soil somewhere between, you know, five and six pH. Um, and it's perfect. We're right at like five, two to five, five. And then also the rainfall is almost perfect. We, we need about an inch a year. I mean, sorry, an inch a week. And um, this part of Mississippi gets about 50 to 55 inches a year. So it's, again, perfect. And then finally, the sun, the amount of sun, we have a great growing season. We can grow from about uh, right now through late October, which is a really long uh, growing season compared to other regions. So it's, it's perfect for a number of reasons. Well, on your site, I was reading your journal on your site, and there's just a handful of entries in it. They're very insightful from where you start this whole process, and you talk about the first 1,000, 1,200 plants, whatever it might have been. You grow these all yourself in the nursery mm -hmm. from scratch? Yeah, we, we do. So we um, everything that's in the field, well, some are from cuttings that we purchased, and then the second block that we planted, we grew from seeds in the nursery. Um, and then we're trying a new cultivar right now that's actually from the country of Georgia. And um, our buddies at the Great Mississippi Tea Company over in Brookhaven, in Mississippi, they germinated those seeds for us. Um, and so we're planting those this weekend. How many plants do you have now? How many are active on your farm right now? Uh, after this weekend, we'll probably have around 4,000 in the ground. And you can probably get uh, four to 6,000 in an acre. Here's the thing, you know, and I heard this on some of your other interviews, which I just love this point. Um, I think it was with... Uh, Patty Gentry. Well, talking about how much you can produce off of an acre or two of land. Right. That so many people think, oh, big ag, you have to have thousands of acres to be. It's like, no, that's not true. You just got to select your crop in a smart way. And, you know, tea, you can produce over 2,000 pounds of finished tea from an acre. Um, the market for specialty tea, the retail market, is somewhere between $100 and $300 per pound. So 2,000 pounds times $300. I mean, that's a lot of revenue from an acre. Since Thomas brought it up, I'll take the opportunity to direct you to Open Field Radio Season 2, Episode 14, The Farming Soul of a Chef with Patty Gentry. A fantastic episode where she does. She talks about working small plots of land, an acre, maybe less, and really maximizing that land in the production of that land. It's super cool. She's got a great movie out. You can find it uh, in iTunes and other places. The Soul of a Farmer. Check that whole thing out. You can see it firsthand really cool you know it's really interesting it goes to you start looking at every quarter acre of abandoned property um, around town and you start thinking wow folks could actually produce a really good living off of even a quarter acre so it's fascinating well and patty did such a great job of explaining that very principle right there and it's great to hear you guys apply the same thing that is really cool Four thousand plants on an acre so you're working basically an acre right now is that right we're working an acre right now mm -hmm. and we um we prepped another 10 acres. And so our, our next big scale-up expansion um, will probably plant another two to four acres. And then we're also going to take some of that land and replant um, original longleaf pine, you know, taking some of the land and, and giving it back to longleaf pine as it originally was for thousands of years. Well, as I, as I listen to you talk here, and obviously growing anything at a commercial level is a challenge. So are there any agricultural challenges as you go through this that you were unforeseen for you or anything that you go, oh, man, and now this? <laughs> there, yeah, I, two come to mind. The first is weeds. <laughs> How <laughs> I mean, did I know? How did yeah, I know? When you plant small tea plants, um, you know, the battle with the weeds is nonstop, you know, and so um, not wanting to spray uh, during harvest season is so you're handful in weeds. 
And, you know, that was something that I didn't think about <laughs> whenever we started playing plants. So, you know, I'll take conference calls sometimes, you know, with my earbuds in on my hands and knees pulling weeds out of the farm um, just to try to keep up, you know, because I can't get it all done on the weekends. So that was an absolute battle and continues to be. Now, here's the great thing, Mark, is that as they grow um, and they start to hedge together, the plants do, they shield out the sun um, and it's they have natural weed control. And so as the bigger they get, we don't have that problem anymore. It's just when they're young. What is the weed du jour? Uh, it, it varies there. You know, there's um, Bahia grass. Um, it's a bunch of different grasses primarily because this is pasture sure. um, that we planted. Um, and so we're not dealing with uh, a lot of weird things, but pro- mostly grass. And you and you fight that just simply by pulling it by hand? <laughs> yeah, for the most part. It's awesome. We'll do, um, you know, some really dilute um, glyphosate, you know, certain times of the year when it's not harvest season. Um, just because we can't keep up, but yeah, during harvest season, it's, it's almost hundred percent by hand, you know, and then we'll be able to squeeze our little narrow mower between the rows, um, whenever we can as well. Are there any diseases or anything to give you any trouble? Yeah, that's, that's, what's been great. I mean, we really, and again, there's no playbook. This is all trial and error. Mm-hmm. So we're all the growers, you know, in the deep South are just waiting for that one disease to come in and just knock us out, but it hasn't shown up yet. We haven't seen it. The biggest concern is army worms. You know, army worms, uh, they'll pop up and they'll they'll clear out two or three acres before you even are ready for them. I mean, it's amazing how fast they work. But we, we haven't seen any on our farm yet, but um, that's always a concern. We've had others, other friends that have lost, you know, a couple acres to army worms. This is Daniel Carmichael, Bear Flag Robotics, Newark, California. Season one, episode 12. It's alive! And you're listening to Open Field Radio. We're out here in Arizona, so water, you say 55 inches a year. I don't see 55 inches in five years. <laughs> ten, right. ten years, we don't see 55 right. inches. We really don't. But that said, is there any other watering you have to do, or is nature doing the whole thing for you? Nature's doing most of it. You know, peak summer months, um, we'll, we'll turn on irrigation, but we have everything um, drip line. And this was another manual labor exercise was um, getting all the drip line played out. So, you know, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of feet of uh, drip line rows. But, um, but yeah, so we'll water a little bit during the peak summer months. You know, we really don't have to a whole lot, especially as they get older. When is harvest season? You've talked about that a couple times there. Harvest season's about right now. Last year and the year before, we saw um, first growth this week, you know, this week of March. Um, I haven't seen it yet. We had a late freeze a couple weeks ago, and I think that set us behind a few weeks. But um, we should see, they call it breaking bud, when the first buds start to show up on the plant. So we haven't broken bud in our field, but we know um, it looks like some others are getting really close. So I think we'll break bud in the next week or two, and that'll put our first harvest uh, mid to late April. Nice. And, you, and you'll, you'll harvest all the way till? End of October. Wow. Yep. Every wow. weekend. Our, <laughs> Every weekend, <laughs> our, our kids, uh, our kids are excellent tea pluckers, and that's the other sure. thing I want to come back to is the uh, is the plucking, the hand plucking. Okay. So we were envisioning that we could kind of move to uh, mechanical plucking fairly early in the process, but the tea plants really need to be a certain age and structure before you can start to use a mechanical plucker over the top of them. So it's all by hand, and so every weekend we'll have the whole family out there uh the kids will all have baskets and we'll be handpicking tea for you know the next 20 weekends (laughs) (laughs) making memories yeah that's right (laughs) well if i'm not mistaken tea and a tea plant can live a very long time crazy long time it is you know that's a really neat part of this mark is Mm -hmm. that 
this is kind of a, it's a multi-generational crop that we're planting. And so the tea plants that we planted two, three years ago will be hitting their prime, maybe even after I'm not here anymore. And so it'll be for my children and for my grandchildren, we'll be seeing the tea plot at its prime. And that's really, it, it changes the perspective a bit. Um, but they, yeah, they have a lifespan of 80 to 100 years, which, which makes it interesting whenever you're designing your field and you have um, oak trees, let's call it 20, 30 feet away. And I remember I was with um, Jason McDonald, one of our buddies from Great Mississippi Tea Company, and he was kind of looking at our design and he said, oh, you're, you're too close to the oak tree. And I said, too close to the oak tree? That thing's 30, 40 feet away. He said, yeah, but it's a, it's a hundred year plant. So what's that oak tree going to look like in a hundred years? I was like, God, I hadn't thought about that. You're right. You know, you really have to think on a different time scale with this crop. Talk to me about the tea itself. What is it? Yeah, sure. It's a camellia. So, um, and it's camellia sinensis, which is just Chinese camellia. Um, And so that's the species that's used to make the tea that we all drink. And there's a few different subspecies of that or uh, cultivars. Um, there's a there's an Asamica, which is kind of the Indian variety uh, of the camellia. And then there's the Sinensis, which is the Chinese variety. And both of those are used and you can make all the different teas from that. You know, a lot of people think, oh, is that is your are your plants green tea plants or black tea plants? Well, it's it's all the same plant. It's just how you process it. Um, and so that's what we have. We have, And so the cultivars we have, we have an Australian cultivar. Um, we have one, like I said, from the country of Georgia. Uh, we have some seeds that we're working with from Taiwan. Um, and then there's also a what's called the Mississippi mother plant that our friends at, um, in Brookhaven have that is uh, originally from a, a Lipton research station and that was done back in the 70s and 80s. And it was uh, a cultivar generated specifically for the Mississippi environment. And so we have a, a thousand of those um, that are being germinated right now, those seeds. Oh, that's cool. That's yep. awesome that that yep. even exists. You talk about three primary factors that determine the flavor of tea. Can you dive into that for me? Yeah. Well, the, the first one's a tewar, which we've talked about, which is um, has to do with the land. So that's everything. It's the same with um, wine and, you know, other beverage and food products that, you know, that are tied back to their flavors. The specific um, characteristics of that product are tied back to the land. And so that's the soil type, the, the climate the sun, the altitude, all of the things um, that are connected uh, to the actual growing environment is the tewar. And so at higher altitude, you're going to grow slower. Your leaf is going to grow slower. That's going to change the chemical compounds. That's going to change the flavor a bit. Uh, we grow fast. We're you know not very high above sea level and we have a lot of sun and it's really hot. And the plants love it. So we grow fast and that changes the flavor a bit. So tewar is number one. Cultivar is the other one, you know, different cultivars, the flavor. If I make the exact same tea the same way from the Australian cultivar versus the uh, Georgian cultivar, they're going to taste slightly different. They just have inherent genetic properties. Um, And then the third one's processing. So how I process it once we pluck, what we do with it after that in our processing facility can completely change the flavor as well. Well, let's look at this for a minute. We've been talking about tea for more than half an episode now, but what is tea? Tea, by definition, is an aromatic beverage prepared by pouring hot or boiling water over cured or fresh leaves of the Camellia sinensis plant. But did you know that tea is second only to water as the most consumed beverage in the world? 
tea is native to East Asia and probably originated in the borderlands of southwest China and northern Burma, which I believe is now Myanmar. And records show that tea was drank as early as the 3rd century AD. It was popularized as a recreational drink during the Tang Dynasty in China, and from that point, tea drinking spread throughout the country. The Portuguese are credited at bringing tea to Europe in the 16th century, and in the 17th century, it made it to England, and the rest is history. When you talked about the three kinds of tea, the green, the black tea, the white mm-hmm. tea, it's all the same tea. Can you walk me through the breakdown of those? When is it green? When is it black? When is it white? Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's start from the beginning of the process. So you and I are out in the field and we are hand plucking tea and we get our baskets full and we take it into the processing facility. All right. So we're starting from scratch with a great batch of uh, green tea leaf. The first step is to wither it. So all three of those teas that you mentioned, green, black, and white, they all go through a withering step. And withering is just, there's these big circular bamboo trays and the leaves are spread out on those trays and the humidity and temperature are controlled and the leaf, just like if you um, pick any leaf that may, it's rigid at first. And then if it sits out in the sun for a while, it starts to get limp. It's the same thing. It's releasing water. It's evaporating the water out of the system. And that's step one. Now for white tea, that's all you do. You tightly control withering. Usually it's in the sun for sun withering. Um, And after you finish the withering step, then you'll dry it in a dryer. And that's white tea. Very minimally processed. Um, It also has a lot of the antioxidants and the polyphenols still intact. And that's why a lot of people love white tea for that, for the health properties. So we have our white tea that we've made. Um, Now we've withered our green and our black. The green tea and the black tea will go then go through a rolling step. So there's these big machines, well, actually not that big, um, but you dump the tea in and it rolls it over these ridged plates. And that just breaks up the tea leaves and breaks up the cells and releases the oils and, and um, starts releasing some of the water that's in the tea leaf itself. Now, after rolling a green tea, you're going to steam it. And steaming it kills the enzyme that causes the tea to go brown, kind of like an apple. If you cut an apple and leave it out, it's going to go brown after a while. All right. So that's an, that's an enzyme that causes that. When you steam the tea up to a certain temperature, that it denatures that enzyme. And so that keeps it green. And then we're going to go through the drying uh, step for that green tea. The black tea doesn't get steamed. It gets rolled and then it gets oxidized. And we let it sit under controlled temperature and, and, and humidity. And it just like an apple sitting on the counter, it'll brown over time. And then we'll dry it and we'll have our black tea. So very generalized, but those are the kind of the key steps for those three teas. Coast to coast and around the world. You're listening to Open Field Radio. If you haven't heard it, it's new to you, right? Gowan USA has a broad selection of herbicides, fungicides, and insecticides to deliver customized solutions for your crops. Gowan provides the right programs to fit your unique needs, standing behind our products with expert service and support. And Gowan USA is family-owned and operated right here in the United States of America for over 55 years. That's a long time. Check it out for yourself at gowanco.com. And now you know. I love to tell you about things that I like. And that's the only reason I want to tell you about them. And if you're like me, I take notes on post-it notes on anything. I'll write something down. But then what? I lose them, right? Well, here, if you're like me in that way, get yourself the Adobe Scan app. I love this thing. Get it on your phone, right? On anything you want. That's right. Get the app out. It's Adobe. Come on. It's going to be quality. Snap a shot of your notes with the camera in the app. Bingo, bango, bongo. You save it. It's a PDF in your phone just as you wrote it. 
From there, you can share it or do whatever else you want to do with it. But the one thing you won't do, I promise you, you won't lose it. Adobe Scan in your favorite app store. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Open Field Radio. And now back to Open Field Radio with our guest from Longleaf Tea Company in Laurel, Mississippi, Thomas Steinwinder. You had some fun because I saw you guys on TV. And that was kind of cool. That's where I found you. But you guys were on HGTV on Hometown. Hometown, that's right. Ben and Aaron on Hometown and HGTV. But, A, I love that show. I watch it all the time because I got an old house. But what was that experience like? It was an absolute blast, to be honest with you, Mark. Um, ben and Aaron, they're friends of ours, and they are just like you see on TV. They are absolutely, like, just almost obsessed with getting at the soul of a project and, like, honoring the history. Like, Aaron especially, like, she loves honoring the history of a project. And so the five, six generations of my wife's family that have lived in that farmhouse, I mean, it was very important to them to renovate that house in a way that honored the past. Um, and honestly, I feel like they knocked it out of the park. I mean, it was, it was so much fun to come in and see what they had done with that house. They did. For the listener and for folks that haven't seen the episode, set me up on what the house is and where it falls in your family or in your wife's family. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, sure. So um, it's, it's an original uh, farmhouse. It's probably 100, 110 years old. Um, that's been on the, her family's land uh, from the beginning. Her great, great uncle built it for his dad or granddad. You know, it just goes way back. It's like the family tree is hard to even follow. Um, and it had been, you know, my wife came home from the hospital uh, in it. Um, her, her father came home from the hospital. I mean, every, almost every generation you know, that was their first home. And it had been sitting there for a long time. We had renovated the back porch to be our tea processing facility. And the rest of the house, we just had this dream of eventually renovating it um, to be a gathering place for folks to come see the farm, appreciate the tea, have tea tastings, um, or just hang out and, and enjoy the land. Um, and so we were passionate about it, but it, it was just too big of a project for us to take on. Um, and so we sat down with Ben and Aaron and said, hey, this is our vision. What do you all think? And they loved it. And they renovated it. And it's just, it's amazing. We're so happy with it and proud of it. Yeah. And well, you should. It's its awesome to see it repurposed, if you will. It's still the families, but its yeah. its it has the same vision of the future as the tea plants themselves do. I think it's really, really cool. And they did. They knocked it out of the park. It was awesome to see. Yeah, it, it was. And you probably saw some of the the builds that Ben did for it. I mean, the table, I mean, right. the 12 foot long, you know, Mississippi wood tables and the tea trays. I mean, it was just fantastic. If I could just get them to come to Arizona, I got a project for them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, well, what do you do? Well, tell me, what's your favorite way to have tea, first things first, and just the flavor profile of that? Yeah, sure. So, my answer is going to be annoying because it depends on the day and it depends on the weather. You know, I have a whole cabinet just completely stocked full of different teas from different places and a lot of hours of different batches because every batch we're tasting to get the, the flavor profile. But I really love a good, strong green tea. And when I say strong, I don't mean strong on the bitter side of things. Uh, I, you know, strong in terms of just the strong green flavors, the chestnut um, the watercress, you know, even like some of the, has some of the vegetable flavors to it. Like I really just like that strong green tea and I'll drink that throughout the year. During the warmer months, I, I do more white teas and aged white teas. And, um, during the cooler months, 
Um, I do a lot of black teas and, and dark oolong teas. So, yeah, I, it, it just depends on the day for me. You know, I don't care if it's tea, coffee, scotch, wine, any of those, the acquired taste kind of things, the things that you dig really deep into those flavor profiles because there's things in them that you like. I absolutely love those and those kinds of things. And for me, the quest for your favorite one should never end. When you go somewhere and you have a cup of tea, what are you looking for? What hits you? What's, what's your profile go? Oh, check that out. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'll nerd out a bit first and look at the, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm known to tear open a tea bag. I want to see because there's so much, there's, an, there's just a, the whole history of the process that was used to make it is in the leaf that you see. And, you know, and that's been a really fun thing, Mark. Whenever people try our teas and they want to talk about it, like, oh, I taste this, I taste that, I see this. I'm like, oh, well, let me tell you, um, that was picked on, you know, in August and it was a really hot day. And here's why it looks that way. And, you know, you can completely connect what you're drinking with the steps that, you know, the agricultural processes, as well as the production processes. And it's so fun for people to connect those two. Absolutely. Um, grabbing a tea bag and throwing it in a cup and not thinking about it. Well, tea like yours, I love this. The, the romance of it, if you will, I think is really cool because tea, let's say like yours, it's 100% by hand from when it's grown to when it's consumed. That's right. All the way through. And it's traveled through all those hands to get to the end user. All right, that's a fantastic mm. experience. Yeah, oh, it is. Awesome. And it's really fun to share with others. Um, and just to show, you know, we all grew up, um, especially in the Deep South, um, with iced tea. And with, you know, very strongly sweet iced tea. Right. And so you never really had an opportunity to just appreciate, like, like what is tea a lot? Like, just pull out everything else. What does the tea itself taste like? You know, just tea. And getting to learn that and, and, and learn what Mississippi, what is unique about Mississippi tea? Right. You know, it, it's, it's just been a blast. Well, everybody I've talked to that said, hey, I'm talking to these guys today. This is going to be so great. 100% of them all said sweet tea because of <laughs> Mississippi and uh, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever. And I was Absolutely. like, there's got to be more to it than that. <laughs> there is. But hey, look, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a, uh, a complete purist and in no way a snooty tea guy. Like I will drink the heck out of sweet tea. <laughs> well, who wouldn't, right? Part, and I'll put all kind of honey and fun stuff in it as well. It just depends. You know, and that's the great thing about tea is it's a blank canvas. I mean, you can do so much with it. You can add what you want to. What is the future of tea in America? Got any idea? Oh, man, this is like my favorite thing to talk about, Mark. <laughs> it, well, because, all right, so let me set the stage for you with numbers. I'll, I'll put on my engineering hat, all right? So the U.S., we probably, we consume about 160 to 170 million pounds per year. That, so that's the fifth highest per capita tea consumption in the world. So in the U.S., we consume a whole lot of tea. U.S. production is right around 10 to 20,000 pounds, okay? So if we drink 170 million pounds a year, we only produce about 20,000 pounds. That's 0.0001%. Right. So you think about it from a, just from a market standpoint, there's so much upside to grow the UST industry. So we're just getting started. So my first answer to your question is like, we're just kicking this thing off. Um, and here's the other great uh, trend that's happened is every other beverage has gone through the stage of decommoditization and focusing on local and focusing on high quality. So think about coffee. When I was growing up, there was like three options for coffee in the grocery store. Same thing with beer. 
You know, there's like two beers. Well, now there's 30 beers and they're all different qualities and, you know, and they're exciting because some are local. Same thing with coffee. Well, tea is just getting started with that. You know, tea is just now, local tea is just getting started. U.S. grown tea is just getting started. So I'm incredibly bullish and incredibly excited about what the U.S. tea market could be in the future. I believe you said the Carolinas had tea growing. Mm-hmm. I know there's an, you mentioned the, uh, the, the other Mississippi folks growing tea there. Um, mm-hmm. Any other regions in the country growing it at all? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a group in the Pacific Northwest. There's kind of a cluster up there, um, Oregon, and then there's the Carolina cluster, and then we have some in the Deep South. There's uh, there's three of us in Mississippi, a couple in Louisiana, and then a couple in Alabama. Um, but you know, other than like the Deep South cluster, the Carolinas, and the and there's a few that are starting up in California. I mean, it's it's a pretty short list. There, you know, there's not a lot. We're just getting started, like I said. Well, if the listener wants to partake and participate in this, tell us how they find you and uh, can they order online and do those kind of things? Absolutely. So on our website, uh, longleaftea.co.co, you'll see all of our products. Now, I'm going to say right now, as of late March, we haven't started harvesting yet. So we completely sold out last year and we are anxiously awaiting harvest so that we can have tea um, ready and to restock our online store. But yes, you can absolutely buy it online or you can uh, come visit us. You know, once we get uh, harvest season cranked up, uh, we're going to open up the farmhouse um, for tours and tastings and would love for folks to come uh, visit Laurel, Mississippi and visit the farm and have some great tea. This is Marshall Trimble, Scottsdale, Arizona. You must be the Marshall. Arizona's official state historian. Season 1, Episode 5, and you're listening to Open Field Radio. What's your favorite thing about tea? Mm. All right, I'm going to give you two answers. Love it. Am I allow- if I'm allowed to you do that. Are. You are. Give me three if All you right. want. <laughs> My favorite thing about making it and producing it is the field work. I love being out there with Hillary and our kids and it, there's just a, there's something that connects you to generations past when you're all out in the field together and you think you're like, oh, this is what my great, great granddad did on their farm. Their whole family was out together working on the farm together. Um, and we just absolutely love it. So I'd say that's my favorite thing. And then when it comes to consuming the tea, it's fun to do with friends and it's fun to show them and, and just let them experience really good tea sometimes for the first time. And just seeing the look on their face, like, I had no idea that tea could taste like this. This is amazing. And that's really fulfilling and exciting. You've been listening to Open Field Radio from Gowan Company. Like, share, subscribe, review. Everywhere podcasts are found. The views and opinions expressed by the guests of Open Field Radio are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of the program. All rights reserved. No duplication or redistribution without permission. 